Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Uh, hello, welcome to a, another Brothers to Bar Book Club. I'm delighted to be joined by Bob Cryer, who's uh, probably best known as playing the taxi driver in Giddy Strasbourg, of course. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, he's written a fantastic book about his dad, Barry Cryer, called Barry Cryer, Same Time Tomorrow, The Life and Laughs of a Comedy Legend. Books have long titles these days, I've noticed. This is, they've, got, they've got three titles, this book. So, uh, hello, Bob. Lovely to see you. Richard, hello. How are you? Yes, we're, we work together on Giddy Stratosphere, so we have... Uh, you know, we did. We've been in the same... When I say work together, we're in yeah, the same Yeah, never in the same room. But, uh... <laughs> Almost the same bit of the film. Which I think. Uh, all my stuff was filmed uh, to, uh, with a fit of pertinence outside Dad's house. Oh, was it? Yeah. Wow. So we narrowly missed um, a celebrity cameo. Yes. Other than your, other than yourself, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was Dad wandered out and Nick Helm was uh, prancing up and down the pavement uh, as um, as the main protagonist brother going yes. into a church, and Dad was sort of 
staring with be- bewilderment as um, as indeed was uh, was Nick I think yeah. back he didn't realize where we were <laughs> good well yeah it was it was that, again that was a lot that was a lockdown thing wasn't it that was yeah so I, was. I had, that, again that was just uh, yeah that was in the and uh, December I think I recorded by stuff I was inside the church but it would have been a different church because it a wasn't different church, it, it wasn't a church, so a big but... big shout out to uh, to Laura Jean for that one <laughs> yeah um, she was great she was she's been a guest on uh, the podcast if you want to go and listen to that one but anyway we're not here to talk about her we are here to talk about, about your dad and you're brilliant but it's a uh, it's uh, obviously like a, a really difficult thing um, for anyone to write a biography of someone, but obviously as the son of the person in the book, it's a mm-hmm. very difficult balancing act to get that right, right? Because you you know you could be too it's your own dad, so of course you, it could be it could be too um, fawning, I suppose is the wrong word, but it could be you know or it, it could be too you know, put put him as a sort of well, they go one of either way, don't they? Memoir, yeah. Memoirs about parents are either they're, they're, a, they're oh, a shining shining light or it's a, a terrible thing. I think... Um, well, jo- Joan Crawford, Mommy Dearest, is, yes. the, is probably is the, is the top of that, that pinnacle. But yeah. um, um, the... Um, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Uh, uh, Dennis Miller, US stand-up. Yes, yes, yes. Who, who, who had a series... I forget, it's Dennis Miller rants or something. He just... Uh, uh, a themed um, monologue each week and he did one on religion and was talking about God and he said for many people God is a, a benevolent you know uncle figure who's uh, always there with good advice and, and calming words a bit like Bing Crosby in uh, the Bells of St Mary's he said for other people God is a vengeful hateful father figure who's always damning their every move and threatening them with violence a bit like Bing Crosby in real life <laughs> Yes, so there is I, that. So I tried is... to, I tried to straddle both. Uh, uh, not that that's what I'm about to reveal to your listeners that that's it, which way I'm uh, leaning. But you're absolutely right. It could be a hagiography, and it could be um, a fawning, as you say. Yeah. But a, a friend of mine called Piers Torday, the children's author, oh, yes. I had a chat with him as I, at the outset of uh, of writing this. Uh, which, incidentally, of course, you you know, you say it can be difficult. I didn't really have um anything to compare it to i mean you really get one shot at it really um writing about your own father if indeed you knew him um or her in that case because uh, you know if you're you're a kardashian uh, it can be um a slightly complicated process but here's torday said um his advice was don't be too polite and i quite like that that's a nice sort of uh middle way into things because i think politeness is what gets you into the the, the realms of uh, um, of a sort of a uh, a celebrity sort of fawning hatchet job, really. And yeah. uh, um, I th- I think Dad's reputation preceded him, obviously, as being a very well liked and very well loved figure, sure. not just um, by fans but in the industry too, which is a rare feat to pull off yes. at any stage or at any era. And of course, that the secret to that for dad a lot of the time was to not really celebrate one era he didn't plant his flag in the sand and say this is a golden era of comedy um he was always curious always interested and i sort of wanted to reflect that which is what explains the way he was which didn't always come you know with benevolence i mean there were no. some sort of sharp edges to that but not so much so that um when dad was once asked by a journalist about Les Dawson, uh, who said, was there a dark side to Les Dawson that we didn't know uh, or we didn't see? And dad said, well, if there was, we didn't see it, <laughs> you know, which is that sort of 
yeah the constant need for there to be a dark side to a clown and a, and a comedian which yes. in a lot of people's cases is true but not in dad's case no, but you know, but but a you know, there there are some uh, revelations in the book that luckily nothing, <laughs> nothing too too horrendous. I mean, there's there's a there's a good no, one which not... I won't I won't spoil. But the one yeah. that uh, the one that uh, surprised me was that uh, you did some research and found, or, or like a a picture writer got in touch with you to ask yeah. whether your dad really had had a number one in our, in Finland, which he'd talked. Yes. Had certainly told me about in one of the one of the. Fun- it's sometimes the first people. Sometimes the first thing he said to people when he met them. You know, um, and, uh, uh, very nice to meet you, Barry Cryer, number one in Finland, nineteen fifty-eight. Yeah. Uh, and he and apparently we don't think he did actually have a number one in Finland, though. He well, may, you'll have to read the book may... to find out. But <laughs> no, no, I don't think there's much uh, <laughs> there's much art artfulness to that. But no, he was uh, uh, an obituaries editor. Phoned me up two days after we made an announcement, which was about four days after dad had died to say, um, I'm just doing a bit of fact checking. And um, uh, is it true that your father was number one in Finland in 1958? And I said, well, how dare you wash your mouth out? Of course he was. Uh, you shouldn't even be asking that question. And then he get, gets back to me on an email uh, about six hours later. So I've just spoken to a, a, a Finnish music historian who said that there weren't any charts in Finland in 1958. And so... So you know the the scales fell from my eyes, and this 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 life of uh, um, dishonesty that I'd been living uh, was 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 laid bare to me. Um, but and I thought, in terms of bedside manner, this person shouldn't be a doctor. You know, an obituary editor is uh, is one thing, but that's you know break it to me gently. Yeah, um, to ring you up, it's you know yeah. he could have just ignored it. He didn't have to, <laughs> to put it in. To taunt me with it, or just perpetuate perpetuate the lie. But no, the conclusion I come to in the book is that ever the ever the comedian and ever the yeah. comedy writer you know for dad what's the better line even if i'm i'm, I'm pretty sure it did sell quite well and i will back him <laughs> to the hills yeah. uh for you know for that it was called purple people eater by the way which was a, a one of those sort of novelty records of uh, the 50s recorded by a guy called sheb woolley uh an actor in the states who is the one of the baddies in um in high noon and for whatever reason they didn't sign a deal with the uh, the nordic countries um, <laughs> <laughs> laying laying the field open for a young barry crier to steam in uh with a with a six single deal off the back of that which was uh all thanks to um, a guy called frankie vaughan who some of your older listeners may remember yeah i remember frankie yeah i mean yeah. you know as well as being no it's it doesn't this book does a, a lot of jobs and does them very well it's it's very well judged i think and very well balanced because you. you know it, it is a personal tribute, and it's a you know, and it's obviously very close uh, to you personally. I think you do tread the line very well between you know those those two possibilities of, of, of uh, making him a saint and making him a sinner. You know, it's it's all great to, to that, but also it's an incredible history of light entertainment because your dad was there for everything over sort of this 50 year period or so wasn't he just he was the, the 2000 year old man i yeah. said he's like he's like the obi-wan <laughs> kenobi of uh, of comedy he just he would just appear in corners and just <laughs> give people sage advice and then disappear again yeah um yeah he's 19 1955 is his first professional gig which is, if you think about it as 10 years after the second world war so you're still in the realms of of music call and variety and the wireless is king uh in terms of comedians which is pretty much how he spent a lot of his childhood because he his father died when he was five 
yeah. <laughs> when my dad was five, I hasten to add. Um, and uh, uh, his brother, who was 10 years older than him, joined the Merchant Navy. So by the time dad was, um, I suppose he would have joined when he was about 16, 17. So when, you know, just about cognizant of of what it means to be a family, you're, you're sort of robbed of your two father figures or your yeah. you know, elderly, elderly, uh, elder males. And with a, a quite a, um, uh, a woman of few words, his mother, my grandmother, uh, in the house, um, he he sort of retreated into into his imagination and spent a lot of time listening to Hancock and Itmar and those those kind of shows. But he he didn't really unlock um, uh, the sort of joy of performing until his mother, who to great to his great surprise, took him to see Max Miller. And when um, and for those of you listeners that don't know, Max Miller's very kind of cheeky, chappy, uh, uh, a Cockney figure with a sort of uh, great um, floral suit and a and a and a hat, uh, sort of trilby hat. Um, and he's uh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, oh, madam, all this kind of stuff, leaning down yeah. the front row and and uh, and sort of being very conspiratorial. Everything that my uh, very demure uh, Yorkshire housewife grandmother wasn't. Um, Dad said that when he told a cheeky joke, uh, she twinkled and he hadn't really seen that from her growing up. And it was, you know, my pop psychology about it, trying to analyze what it was that uh, that motivated dad uh, for acceptance. You know, one of which is the, the sort of classic standby. Uh, Bob Mortimer talks about it in his book about losing your father early. You're sort of always chasing this person to gain approval from. Because, yes. you know, without without being too stereotypical, it's usually the mother in a in a relationship that is sort of endlessly supportive. And then you've got the father that you're trying to uh, you're trying to reach for approval uh, for whatever reason. I'm sure that those those rules don't apply in quite the same way these days. But certainly to dad uh, at yeah. that time, the, um, you know, a big part of his motivation was to get his mother to laugh a second time and a third time. And that sort of found him pursuing that for pretty much the rest of his life. Even, you know, when he met, uh, met my mother, who was, uh, you know, she was a, she was a tough critic and uh, had a tough <laughs> audience sometimes. So he had to, he had to work hard to get the laughs from her as well. Um, yeah. so that was, that was where dad started from. Um, but of course, you know, very quickly he was into a generation post-war generation, not, not, they're not yet boomers, but, uh, it's the university set and satire and, you know, without doing that sort of uh, cliched sweep through, <laughs> through post-war, you know, British comedy and into, and then David Frost arrived and that was the week that was and all that kind of thing. But that sort of dad's experience of it was of almost like whiplash of the, the next big thing. Cause he goes from, from Elvis and rock and roll and everything that he wanted to be actually, because whilst he was trying to make his, his mother laugh, he, he always said later in his life, um, oh, Barry, you're a writer. No, 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 I'm a hack. Or, you know, Barry, you're a comedian. No, I'm an entertainer. Always wanting to deflect, uh, you know, the defining role and not be pigeonholed. Um, but then someone said, oh, Barry, you're a singer. And he went, yeah, yeah, I, I want to be a singer. <laughs> I mean, all all the way through, he was sort of waiting for the singing gigs to, to show up whilst he was, you know, writing for uh, for the great and the good of, uh, of British comedy. That was the first thing. And I guess, you know, if you think that he was um, 21 when Elvis 
first on the scene, then that's that pretty much sweeps up him and the rest of his generation. Um, But then he's, you know, he's performing variety stuff and telling jokes, which, you know, even by 1960, 61, sort of becoming an out of date way of of um, of uh, framing your comedy. Uh, he still managed to to survive and and work in that that period and right up to to being at the Edinburgh Festival, which is probably when you met him first. I would you know he started in eighty yeah. eight. Yeah, um, probably. I mean, I think um, yeah, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I saw. I, I remember the first time I went to the light entertainment, you know, radio Christmas party and sort of maybe ninety right. ninety one. That you know, there was a gaggle of these what felt like. At the time, ancient, uh, you know, historical performers like the Beverly Sisters, and you know, I'm sure that Barry and <laughs> Willie Rushton and, and you know all these people yeah. were there. And obviously, now I look back and go, oh, they were like 50 at that, <laughs> at that point. I think I think every part every party is enhanced by at least one yeah. Beverly Sister. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That's, but you know, that's what's missing these days. If it did, it did feel like you were witnessing history, but then I now realise if I was going, and also one of the last time I saw David Nobbs, uh, and one of the last times I saw your dad was at, at, at a more recent Christmas Christmas party, like into a party where they were outside having a pint and smoking a fag, you know. So they they yeah. were, which was very or, much or, or writing, as they <laughs> called it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know, it really he was re- he was a, a pervasive figure, and yeah, it's, it's interesting because I remember. Uh, on the hour did I'm usually from the hour they did a little piss take of uh, I'm sorry I haven't a clue which was basically just your dad's you know someone saying something in your dad's <laughs> laugh but which is sort of what it is a, a fairly accurate yeah, <laughs> portrayal yeah. of it, but just the laugh coming in and it seemed the wrong target and it wasn't particularly cruel but it seemed it seemed a little bit out of place from the hour so you know well, there I was remember, I remember yeah Harry Enfield did uh, when he did his sort of um history of the bbc yeah one and i think he sort of merged harry hill and dad into right. one figure right. barry hill right. and he just it was just this man with curly hair and glasses <laughs> going marvelous marvelous everyone was marvelous and wonderful. which you know dad loved yeah. um but at the same time was you know was not necessarily a fair reflection of the way that he remembered comedy of the past and and uh although <laughs> he, he did his fair share of talking heads but uh, his hair was uh, prematurely white so i guess yeah. your idea of these elderly men you're talking <laughs> about in the you would have maybe met him or been at that party in the 80s late 80s maybe yeah, may 9, 1990 i'd say maybe 19 yeah, yeah. it okay. might, have been, so it might that, have been 89 yeah. yeah, so dad, dad's fifty-five at that point, which is, um, you know, I'm I'm fifty this week, and uh, yeah. not far off it myself. <laughs> don't have don't have the hair, sadly, but uh, <laughs> but you know that that's that was sort of cemented his status as being this, um, you know, Mister Miyagi. Uh, yeah, player. and he was, you know, I think because he felt he felt that he didn't fit into any of the traditions, or he felt he was sort of between the traditions. But I think that was what allowed him, you know, he, because he didn't plant a a flag firmly he was and again this book really brings home and you know I know a lot about your dad because I've interviewed him and I researched him but it's easy to forget the 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 broad the the depth of his work and the number of people he worked with and so you know he's working with Graham Chapman he's working with Kenny Everett very closely you know he's working with Morecambe Wise He, he, he doesn't you know, because he he isn't, you know, he doesn't like get fully. It feels like he could almost have been in in Monty Python, 
and he yep. obviously he acted in the uh, last of the nineteen forty eight show, obviously. So you know, could it, things? When I mean, he crops up, he crops up in the odd episode of Python. Right. I mean, well, so again, the... you can probably you can probably hear the laugh in <laughs> in the studio because they they had a thing which is very similar to Everett. They didn't always have an audience. Um, yes. Dad had done the warm up, and they just said, "Well, stick around, Barry. You want to, you know, uh, enjoy um, enjoy what we're doing, and uh, and you can hear him." Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's the only he's the only Yorkshireman. Uh, in the four Yorkshiremen sketch when it was debuted, <laughs> he pours the wine at the beginning. I think to Marty Feldman, and then and then walks off. That's right. So yeah, but it's it's an incredible career, uh, and it's you know, and I think it. I think for me personally, like as a comedy fan, you go, you know, you're young and you're like, you know, you you're into whatever the cool thing is, and the young ones and Rick Mail for me, and so obviously like that older generation and the the light entertainment thing was you know felt like felt like a sort of throwback to me at that time but the longer your career goes on and you know especially with, what was remarkable about your dad was um how engaged he remained I mean I really see him as someone to aspire to be in the I, I, talk, I, talk, I talk about him and Michael Palin as the two people I would who are both Yorkshiremen as am I originally uh as, as okay. the two, I didn't as, the, that. as the two careers that I would aspire to because Michael Palin obviously like is a superstar and you know everything he does go, turns to gold but your dad you know, stayed interested in comedy, was was doing comedy and creating comedy all through his life. And, you know, there were ups and downs and there were times when he was a, you know, a star himself and there were times when he disappeared into the background, you know, very willingly as a, as a writer. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think for me, the real, you know, the real test of a showbiz career is just longevity. I think if you're there and you constantly work, which Barry absolutely constantly worked right, I mean, right up to the... Yeah, he did it. He well. was he did his last uh, one man. It was never a one man show because he was always with Colin Sell or, or yeah. Tony Demur. Um, he did his last tour of that in 2019, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then even was still gigging up till doing the odd individual thing with Tony. He did one with uh, my sister and her band, The Kites. Uh, um, down in uh, down in Sussex, we did a sort of Q and A thing, and Dad sang a few songs, and and we did this, uh, um, and that was gosh, that was about a year before he died. Uh, we did well, the he, podcast. He did, he did my podcast. Well. Yeah, yeah, you did your podcast. He did my podcast. Yeah, in September uh, twenty twenty, it would have been right. Yeah, the, yes, that's so, right. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, so if you haven't seen it, it's the end's just lovely because he, you know, he, he was. You know, he was clearly he was a little bit unwell, but he would he soldiered on, and at the end he just walks off and he gives the audience like a little wave, and it really feels like, oh. you know, this is me saying thank you, and the it's audience quite, were lovely, yeah. and it's just a yeah. very poignant, lovely little wave at the end of that podcast, and you know, so to for him that was you know four or five months before uh, he died, so you know, yeah. like it, he was still you know making people laugh. And He's still very sharp, yeah. Day. And as he was to the nurses in, in, in that's the right. Yes, he told the Archbishop of Canterbury joke. <laughs> yeah. to, to, that was the, that was his um, uh, that was his parting gift to the yeah. world. Uh, yeah. So you know, it's it, that it's. I think it's absolutely something to aspire to. But I think the fact that he stayed so interested and engaged in comedy and was so supportive to younger younger acts, even if well, they I think were... there was a there's an idea that it was that sort of benevolent attitude that he had was um, was born out of pure um uh you know gentle spirit and and uh, positive character which is largely true but it's not a bad um weapon to have in the industry is to <laughs> sort of remain <laughs> under the radar too but but yeah. be uh, i mean the, the uh, dennis norden had that thing about saying 
uh, Barry, your stuff is it's not always brilliant, but it is it is uh, on my desk on Monday. You know, that's, <laughs> that's... He was he was prolific in that way. Yeah, um, he could deliver, and that's a the, and a lot of that was to do with working at the windmill theatre, which he he was there for seven months. His first uh, job in London, and uh, you had to re audition for your spot. Uh, on the stage at the windmill and for those that don't know the windmill was a uh, what we'd now call a basically a strip club with comedians and and uh, novelty acts uh in between um i would say the strippers but of course in those days they were nudes they the lord chamberlain who still controlled the way that uh, uh public entertainment was um uh was foisted on the public uh was uh, uh agreed that uh, you could have nude women on stage so long as they were tastefully arranged in a tableau as if in a renaissance painting which was <laughs> down to uh, uh, vivian van damme that was his idea uh, who is uh, bob hoskins to, uh, uh, to younger younger <laughs> yes. listeners or vd as his, he was nicknamed by the acts at the at the theater and his boss was mrs henderson so mrs henderson presents that uh, that film with judy dench in the role is uh, is where dad cut his teeth in london and you and he's his um ability to improvise came from the fact that every sort of couple of weeks vivian van damme would say okay that's it that's the end of your stint um but if you'd like to reapply for your for your spot you can uh, write me some new material which <laughs> for anyone that uh, uh, you know uh, knows dad of of legend uh, later in his career you know you'd think would be a bit of a, a bit of a stretch new material are you kidding can i not just put them in a different order um but no he was able to 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 write new jokes and gags and and uh come up with some you know different shtick and learn a new song and all that kind of uh, thing every every couple of weeks and ended up doing what i worked out was dad always said six shows a day six days a week for seven months is nearly a thousand shows and you do that right at the beginning of your career you become very adept uh at turning material around quickly which is, of course is he didn't realize it then was absolute perfect training ground to be a sketch writer to yeah. be able to you know deliver stuff uh, on the spot which is even even more necessary when it came to kenny everett because of course they rocked up in the studio some days with the i don't know how they managed to get this kind of carte blanche but uh, with uh, the shooting script with blank pages <laughs> just yeah. go they had half an idea for a character <laughs> Um, and I, you know, wouldn't suggest that uh, uh, everyone works that way, but uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you can testify, Richard, that there are some days when uh, the genius comes in the moment, and the thing well, that definitely, you'd, planned, yeah, yeah. you'd planned and rehearsed was was not necessarily the thing that you ended up shooting. Yeah, what what's interesting about lockdown, I think, for a lot of comedians is they've started working that way. You know, that the the you know, I did a lot of absolutely improvised stuff. I do a puppet show that I don't know what I'm going to be doing, and it, that, and it, you know, and 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 that's part of the fun of it is that it might fail, it might work, or you might do something, uh, you know, as Kenny Everett did, you know, very unexpectedly that uh, yeah, that uh, that that becomes a classic bit or becomes a classic character. Yeah, uh, it, well, you know, I was interested that you point. I mean, you, you you talk about your dad being an honorary Jew that he wasn't Jewish, but he was pleased that people thought I had he was. it. I had it just. The, I had it just the other day. I was at a book right. signing, and and as uh, um, as the woman was leaving, she sort of tapped me on the shoulder and went, "And of course, he was Jewish." <laughs> yes, as if to say, you know, one of us. Yeah, and I went, "Well, he was one of you in the sense that he was one of everyone." He, yeah, uh, as far as I know. He wasn't Jewish, and he always used to say, "I wasn't fortunate enough." Yes, well, Char- the same he, thing was true of Charlie Chaplin as well. Charlie Chaplin said he'd right. be, be honoured to be Jewish, but he wasn't Jewish. So yeah, yeah. David Baddiel, um tweeted after Dad died uh, a lovely story that uh, he loved. Um, is that 
dad told David when uh, he was interviewed by the Harrow Observer, his local newspaper, they'd um, they'd written uh, that he was Jewish. And apparently they phoned up dad and said, do you want an apology? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, Dad said, no, I'm I'm quite happy (laughs) for you to make that mistake, (laughs) especially if, you know, it makes me sound like uh, Mel Brooks or Carl Reiner, (laughs) which is if there's any Jewishness to dad, it's that, you know, that generation revered the sort of New York uh, uh, Borscht Belt uh, Catskill comedians, you know, of the of the um, the early fifties into the sixties. It was uh, um, it was a, a rhythm and a patter to 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 delivery, which I think is pervasive all over the you know the comedy world. A lot of people recognise that's a really great way to to sell a joke is with with certain emphasis that comes from a you know a, a sort of a, a Yiddish um, a Yiddish lilt. Yeah. It's also interesting, I think, with something I hadn't picked up on myself before that comes through from the book that, you know, he was sort of an honorary gay as well, because he worked very closely with with quite a few gay writers and performers and was, again, always very comfortable with that and always non-judgmental at a time where people were judgmental. Yeah, and a a sliding doors moment. I mean, he he um, uh, he had a what he t- he called the stereotypical gay upbringing you know single yeah. single mother almost and he was he was constantly trying to provide and and uh and please her um because she you know she sacrificed so much and he said a lot of my gay friends had a very similar upbringing you know that in in, in a lot of their cases you know the 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 met the um uh the male figure in the household was a you know this sort of uh, archetype of a of a patriarch and a, a quite a, a a stern taskmaster and and that uh, the 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 sort of more um, uh, feminine side of of, of their personalities uh, brought them to the realization that actually they were they were gay and Dad said he found uh, a great kinship with those kinds of voices um, from circumstance and from his I mean his first flatmate when he was in London was. The Scottish actor Angus Lenny, who yes. was um, uh, in The Great Escape, uh, and uh, um, used to entertain. And of course, again, this is at a period when homosexuality was illegal, and you uh, you had to be very careful, unless you were Julian and Sandy uh, with your your code um, in in Round the Horn. Uh, that you know, Kenneth Williams, a hugely tortured individual, yeah. um, and and allowed to be not camp but flamboyant in a way and and coded on that show but that's about as far as you could push things and in 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 quotes real life someone like angus lenny said to my dad you know didn't really ask uh, too many questions about dad's own proclivities but he said look when i'm when i'm entertaining and you're out uh, i'll i'll put the vase outside the flat uh, i'll turn it upside down um and and one evening angus forgot and dad walked in and <laughs> got quite an education there but um but it's true that that he through there was sort of they were graham chapman and kenny everett particularly were were kind of love affairs in a yeah in another way because he just loved their energy and sensibility and working with them and never felt i mean it never felt like work and, and often that was the case with lots of dad's writing partners is um you know the writer's room is a is a quite a daunting place as i'm sure you know but when you find a partner a writing partner where you don't have 
you know the, the the producer and the exec or sort of other writers in the room and that sort of lovely that lovely sort of vibe that you get going is a is a marriage and it can be yeah. um i mean he he wrote several different kinds of comedy with graham when graham was still writing for monty python yeah um and kenny everett he was there thames and the bbc and that was with um ray cameron or, or cameron mcintyre so so michael mcintyre's dad yeah between the three of them they created that show with um david mallet as producer uh, yeah so it was, it was um it was a very he dad always spoke very fondly about uh about ev as he called him and, and graham and, and and in their in their different ways i mean there's 1989 uh was now i'm, I'm gonna get this the right way around but that was when Kenny Everett was diagnosed with HIV and that's the year I think Graham Chapman died. Yeah, I think that's right. So it's almost like there was a, you know, a withnail moment where I sort of pictured dad standing in, you know, London Zoo going where where's where's all the fun gone? Yeah, uh, it's and, a, it's very sad, very it's very very sad. And you know, and um, you know, he's a survivor as well, your dad, which is, you know, despite being being, you know, dr- drinking with Graham Chapman and that being obviously not drinking well, I, as much I as Graham Chapman. the point Chapman. in the book that the, the weird, the, you know, the weird uh, <laughs> dynamic was that dad was almost responsible for keeping Graham. Yes. Um, on the straight and narrow in terms of drinking, because he'd rock up at his house in, in Highgate and, and Graham would have a, a gin or a vodka on the go at 10 o'clock when dad uh, knocked on the door. And they would chat for a bit and dad said, should we go down the pub? And then Graham was not forced to. He could have obviously have had spirits behind the bar. But the, the sort of uh, prevailing uh, mood was was people were drinking pints yeah. at lunchtime. And there was a, a crowd of people and they would bounce ideas off each other. And, you know, by the second pint, uh, dad and Graham would have their episode or their, the idea for it at least. By the third pint, it was a, a waste of time, and then yeah. Keith Keith Moon showed up, and <laughs> the afternoon disappeared. But <laughs> there's a lot to be said for creativity in that regard. Yeah, in that with um, you know, with things, um, if they'd carried on with Graham and they'd stayed at his house, I'd be amazed if they got anything done by lunchtime. But it sort yeah. of things opened up for a brief window of about, you know, dad says about an hour and a half. That was, that was the best stuff. And and who's to say that that's not the same for, for teetotalists as well. I think, you know, I think that's really true. When you're writing together, you're, if you get a good 90 minutes of actual writing in a day, you've done really, you know, the number of times I've written with people and you, you waste the, we would never, I don't think we ever drank (laughs) during the day. We sometimes (laughs) drank during shows, but. uh, Well, there was, there's a big, there's a big culture change, you know, With you know, in in probably I don't know where I don't know where you'd pin it to, but maybe a period when you know uh, uh, writer performers were yeah. no longer going into work. Yeah. Uh, in the in the old days, you used to get a, a little office at the BBC, and you'd have the producer at the end of the corridor. Yeah. Um, and you were part of that scene in radio. Was it Comedy Corridor or whatever? It's yeah, called? yeah. So or, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. There was the the Langham Street, which has been now like most of the things from my past has been bulldozed and destroyed. <laughs> but yeah, there was you know that was we spent a couple of years at least on that corridor uh, doing weekending and then on the hour and then our own radio shows and it we, we yeah but it was a uh, you know there was a writers' room there was I mean I hated writing on on the hour and I found it quite stressful but. Uh, I'm not on the asteroid but weekending. I love writing on on there, right. um, yeah. uh, but weekending. But um, but yeah, with that that was such an you know it feel again it feels like when you look back at it as like a long happy period because although it was very stressful and not all happy, but it was only a couple of years because you know it was so intense and we were right we were writing 
Stuart and I were writing, you know, we became the, the, the commission writers, they had a scheme. And so you'd end up writing on lots and lots of shows, you know, and I think when other, when other, especially when stand-ups, it's sort of, so it's a little bit of both because when stand-ups were, you could just go and write 20 minutes and make that last for 10 years as a stand-up <laughs> and not do any work. And me and Stu were meeting up and writing, you know, like probably 90 minutes a day, but we were sort of meeting up in the morning. If Stu ever turned up in the morning, he sometimes turned up a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we would, we would, uh, we, we'd be working very hard. So I think that we, we were, we're sort of, we were sort of in between. We were the, we were the last people, I think, to get a lot of, a lot of the, 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 the things that the doors closed behind us from the old, from the old, older school stuff. But obviously yeah. we were, we, we had a foot in both camps as well. So, you know, maybe that's why, partly why your dad, um, you know, means so much to me. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, and, and he did. He'd, he'd ring on uh, by, on birthdays. It must have been twenty twenty one, actually, the, that he was on uh, that he was on Rahalisburg because he would he during my own uh, cancer, he would ring me every now and again to see if I was all right. Even though obviously he knew that he was unwell as well. So he was he was such a, a lovely, thoughtful man, and he would ring me and check I was okay after I had my operation. And I think a few few months later, and he and he loved being on that final show, and he was ringing up to yeah. He, he was slightly taken with the the girl who was working as our runner uh, <laughs> as well. So he kept on ringing up to say how lovely she was, which was, I think, uh, in a nice way. Just just checking in, uh, just checking, know, just making she was sure okay. everyone's everyone's okay. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, he was... did. I mean, he he had cancer himself. Yeah, of um, course. At the end of his life, which he quoted uh, Alan Bennett. Um, uh, who had been through a similar experience. So I've never felt pally enough with it to call it chemo. <laughs> so <to laughs> the, idea, the idea of, of, of owning your cancer in the way that you've done yeah. maybe didn't come 
naturally to that generation. I think there's an idea of, you know, um, and maybe it's a Yorkshire thing too. I don't know, but obviously not in your regard. um, That you, you keep your emotions in check. And there's a big thing that, you know, unites a lot of his personality and character, which you could put down to his generation and, and, and his location, which is don't get too big for your boots. And I think even the idea of talking about your cancer, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to someone of, of our generation, the idea that you wouldn't talk to your friends about it, or you wouldn't talk to your family in a, in a, in a, uh, in emotionally available way. He, he got a diagnosis when he was 80 of unsurprisingly lung cancer. He smoked all his life. Yes. Up until, you know, from the age of 15, right to the very end until he was in a COVID ward and, and, and obviously not able to even get out of bed uh, at one, you know, at, uh, at that point. Um, but he, his attitude to his uh, lung cancer, which you think is, um, you know, well, we as a family had to, had to make provision for that thinking, I don't know how much longer we're going to we're going to have of uh, of dad and we had to say that to ourselves because we didn't even get a chance to talk to him about it we we my brothers would take him you know to uh, to his uh, checkups and the doctor would just be baffled and going it hasn't moved so or metastasized i suppose it would be in that sense it hasn't moved at all and the idea of lung cancer not moving we just thought was down to just sheer stubbornness and he just ignored it and carried (laughs) on. And in many ways, again, is a metaphor for his attitude to the industry. Yes. Is, uh, Oh, you know, the Russ Abbott shows ended. I'm not, I'm not equating Russ Abbott with lung cancer, God forbid, (laughs) but (laughs) the Russ Abbott shows ended. What are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. Just ignore it and plow on and take the next, the next gig. So, you know, he shows up on the Rory Bremner show script, script editing. And he's, um, his amazing sort of ability just to my sister described him often as a brain in a jar his his connection to his own body again probably not dissimilar to a lot of men of his generation was yeah. oh this thing's happening to me but i've got no real relationship with it i'll just carry on in you know my my brain's own own uh, own uh, pharaoh and and uh, and uh, just keep going yeah. um he um yeah so he he probably when you had your news and he was checking in and, and and he found a way of talking about that by checking in on you, talking to you and asking how you are. And then maybe on some level that, that was, uh, that was assuaging, you know, his own guilt about not talking about it, or he was able to compliment something or not at all, or he was just being nice. That that, that lovely word that Michael Palin gets, uh, gets, you know, thrown at him all the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, there is some, you know, there's some dark stuff that you mean, again, because you've got this extraordinary access to the man, because, you know, obviously you spend a lot of your time with him and you've got this amazing archive of all his stuff where some things have survived and some things haven't, or some scripts haven't survived. But, you know, there is this dark, Darkness, large due to the eczema that he suffered for, from early in his life, particularly. But you know, you mentioned a possible suicide attempt, which you know again seems so out of kilter with how anyone yeah. would ima- imagine Barry. So you know, there is, there are, there are those. You know, there there is the man within there. There is the yeah. I mean, is... even as his son, I yeah. can't say for definite. Just like any historian, you go well. Here's, here are the circumstances. There's gas yeah. in the flat, and Dad's asleep in the chair, and the the neighbour from upstairs comes comes down. Uh, a guy called Douglas Camfield, whoever I tell that 
uh, tell that story always want to name check even though he's no longer around <laughs> right. you know if i'm if i'm going to to uh, to sort of preach keeping dad's name alive uh, by telling the story of his life i want to do that for other people as well and he yes. went on to be a quite a famous film uh, 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 tv director particularly on doctor who and was responsible actually for getting dad out of a hole because of the depression that came with his eczema um, and there's a remarkable letter i found that dad wrote to the Yorkshire Post about his great heroes, the goons. They were, you know, great heroes to, to so many of that generation. Um, where they made a joke, it might have been a whole sketch about someone with eczema. And I don't know what the I don't know what the joke was, but Dad had he'd written a few letters to the Yorkshire Post, quite surreal, quite silly, lovely things about a new innovation for um, for the technology on trams, you know, for sort of big butterfly nets for scooping people up from the street. And they're just very silly, lovely things from a 17, 18 year old Barry Cryer. And then there's this one very sober, stern letter saying, well, these, um, uh, you know, not quite saying these so-called comedians because he <laughs> revered them too much. But he was saying, if you know, if this is their what they think is comedy now, then maybe they should have a week off type yeah. thing. And it's always very very austere for you know for a young dad and of course it's because it's about eczema he was going through that at the time and yeah. and now we have hypoallergenic um makeup for performers but in those days if you were had any aspirations to be on stage it literally was grease paint and you were slathering that all over yourself and what it was doing to your skin was just completely counterproductive and so the show would end he probably wasn't you know taught how to uh you know to look after his skin in between times and and uh it would flare up and of course with a with a with an uh, an exmatic face uh on stage not always unless you're uh you know unless you're playing the elephant man it's not really a um a boon to your performance so dad was often sort of stood down from performing having to recuperate was in hospital three or four times and i dare say having not being in London for that long, away from home, away from the apron strings, his 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 mother cooked him five meals a day, even when he was at school. He used to come home for lunch, and the classic thing, you know, you get tea and supper and all that kind of thing. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I because he didn't talk about it a lot, and he certainly didn't talk about his father because he never knew him, and also because his mother never talked about it. This real compounding of all of these elements, thinking, well, old blue eyes, or uh, you know, as he was uh, he was known at home. Uh, he, he thought he'd blown it by failing his uh, his degree and then making, you know, said, well, I've got to put all my, you know, all my eggs in one basket and try and make a go of it in London. And then the eczema comes and, and he's he's basically prevented from working. And this yeah. guy, Douglas Camfield, went downstairs, you know, smelt the gas, got dad, you know, um, into some kind of shape to um, to think about life as something worth living and said, why don't we write some sketches? Um, because he was a floor manager for uh, um, a Scottish comedian. I've completely forgotten his name. It's in the book. Uh, yeah. uh, they wrote four sketches. And for the for the first and only time in dad's life, he had a 100% hit rate. All four ex uh, uh, sketches were accepted. And then he was suddenly a TV writer. Um, yeah. All through, you know, quite an extreme moment in his life. He, yeah. I mean, not, you know, a dark side in the, in the, not in the conventional sense of a comedian, but just something that you're just stopped doing what you're, what you're, you're loving doing and, and hadn't even thought about writing for other people. He'd written for himself, obviously. Um, but that's 
turned out to be his greatest skill in yeah. the industry was we had a, he had an amazing ear for other people's voices and he said it was like a tailor making suits i you know i would measure them up tommy in, t- in case of tommy cooper it's quite <laughs> it's quite big measurements uh, and 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 tailor the material for him and it, and all through adversity yeah um let's talk about you because uh, this is your book um and so was it oh, i was going so well let's not spoil <laughs> well it's you know it's it's an interesting thing because obviously you you wrote this book uh you must have been working on this book in the months after after your father died and you know it's it's only 2 years since he died so yeah. you, you must you must have written it well while all these all these feelings were very raw did you um was that was that cathartic or was it more difficult was was how how you know because you do have this big connection to a subject that that most people writing a biography uh will not have that personal connection did that help or did that hinder or did it you know how did it affect you well i had the other thing of of working with dad um quite a bit towards the end of his life of course yeah Uh, yeah so so there was uh i think that was perhaps the most useful part to begin with because i was used to treating dad in a professional context and in fact you know personally speaking i can't speak for my siblings although my my um in their different ways they've worked with dad over the years uh and my sister's a um a a brilliant singer and toured with the dad and willie rushton um uh, for quite a bit when they were doing their their show that they took to edinburgh and, and sort of introduced dad up there um is that i that was my that was my way into dad um i'd been uh very uh very lucky as the youngest child that i was sort of taken to to gigs and and spent a lot of time in dressing rooms or going to after dinners or in you know a few occasions after lunch speeches at, uh, at football grounds and go and watch the you know go and watch the game and uh, or maybe even become a mascot and things like that and sort of uh, uh so i was always sort of comfortable with seeing the two sides of him at the same time and i suppose in those environments they're um they're sort of quite inter interfuse it's a very social thing and dad didn't really draw a line as anyone knows him between on stage and off stage and he was still telling telling gags uh, to the uh, to the audience lining up to go and see his show talk about you know you're saying about having 20 <laughs> minutes and then doing it for the rest of your life he was burning material all the time yeah um but i i i didn't really know it was going to be cathartic when i started i it was quite um uh it was quite a um uh, a severe undertaking to to think about condensing i think from maybe from a professional point of view it was condensing those 86 years into into something manageable um but also we we were approached as a family by by an agent uh annabelle morello uh who uh said uh has has anyone approached you to do a biography of your dad and i said no and she said do you want to do it knowing that i'd written with him and uh i i think my instinct was was not i want to do it but i don't want anyone else to do it so yeah. it almost started from a from a not a negative point of view but an sort of inverted point of view um and i, I I don't know. You're in a bit of a, a fog of, of of grief at that point, and I I was the sort of public facing sibling, so I'd I'd 
been responsible for putting together the memorial service for for dad which had within it certain elements of of biography obviously i was trying to find the the right tone for the evening um and then also we had the podcast which was recorded within six months of dad dying so little did we know then when we made that 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 was sort of the groundwork so i i realized that there were things in place already that i could lean on uh to get started um but it was i suppose only six months after he died that i i i agreed to do it and then you know uh got some uh got some interviews with people like michael palin and eric idle and and uh, graham garden um to talk about uh working with dad at different periods in his life and and once that was in place i suddenly started to get a hunger for for all the stuff dad didn't talk about and realized what you know what the value i could bring obviously to the book was not just access to to his life but <clears throat> a certain amount of context yeah <clears throat> excuse me which um which as i said dad wasn't you know wasn't very emotionally available about certain aspects like his the death of his father or or even his eczema i mean talked about it but never never really dwelt on it so i was able to uh, for my own curiosity talk about his childhood but then maybe put some of his material and behavior into some kind of context having seen it maybe again with the benefit of being the youngest child um from you know dad was uh, 40 is he 39 40 when i was born uh, so already established as a comedian whereas my my two older brothers and to a lesser extent my sister saw him when he was you know buzzing around um you know yorkshire television trying to 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 sort of do you know hand over a sketch to tommy cooper here and then morecambe and wise there and and uh, i mean one one period 1978 so i would have been five but my oldest brother would have been 15 he was writing on eight different shows it's extraordinary yeah with kenny everett to come he was doing shows like who do you do and what's my line and you know yeah. other shows with a question mark at the end of them um, <laughs> but, but um but in the short answer to your question is is the catharsis of it came came largely from i mean it's i i felt a real privilege not i'm sure not everyone gets to do this um in their in their grief or uh particularly with a parent where you have a whole life to look back on if you're if you're lucky and you get get a parent that lives into their 80s um and and the curiosity to you know ask those questions of him that he wouldn't have been comfortable answering and he's written books of anecdotes and i worked with him on one but he was asked to write an autobiography and his and he tried it and his agent said this is a lovely book barry but all these stories are about other people <laughs> and he was always giving the floor in the way that he was as a as a comedy writer and giving the voice to other in his words more famous people who had he thought more of an x factor than he did yeah. um so I was, it was partly writing, you know, writing the wrongs of his own behavior, the, the, the gaps that I wanted to fill in and say, dad, it's okay. You know, and I couldn't have said this to him when he was alive. It's okay. You can be proud of what you've done. And I, these are all the reasons why you were so good at it. Um, but he would always say, you know, I, that's not for me. I'm, I, I don't want to be, uh, get too big for my boots. I'll be, I'm, I'll be arrogant in my humility was about as, uh, <laughs> uh, was about as forceful as he would get about that kind of thing. Um, so I got a great sense of um, of uh, of justice, 
you know, sort of saying it's it's all right, Dad. You know, you, you you were pretty good at what you did, and I think I can celebrate it. But then that's also coupled with a certain amount of um, of regret, because of course the lessons that people try and teach you throughout their life, you don't really start to learn until they're gone. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm learning that now. And and there was a a tweet the other day. Um, I and I I regret not having uh, the uh, the person's username to hand, but they. Uh, they said, I went to the cinema the other day and uh, I was surprised to see a dog sat with its owner in the, the, the row in front of me. And it got to the end of the movie and I couldn't help but lean over and go, um, excuse me, I hope you don't mind me asking, but um, uh, uh, or uh, don't mind me observing that uh, uh, I was amazed how much your dog was into the movie, seemed to really enjoy it. And the owner said, well, not as amazed as I was. He hated the book. <laughs> So apologies to whoever that is that, that tweeted that. I just, I read that. And my, of course, my first thought was, I've got to call dad. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and of course I couldn't, because he would have added it to his his, panth- <laughs> his pantheon of animal jokes. Um, yes. But it had him sort of written all over it. And I loved, yeah. uh, I loved spotting his voice and continued to do so. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, the book is, you know, it does a lot of jobs. As I say, there's a lovely collection of, of some of his most notable jokes as well, which you, which you, you do great justice <laughs> I'd, to. I'd be a fool. I'd be a fool not to. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and as you say, I think what's, I think it, it goes into exactly what you say, like, you know, figures, you you name all the people he meets and, and say who they are and what they did. And some of them are obviously big stars and some of them are just uh, a journeyman or people who, who crop up in it. But it's 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 a lovely history through your dad of, of lots and lots of different people and of the way entertainment has progressed over the last 60 or 70 years. Uh, so <laughs> but also it's you know, it's about father. He, benef- he, he benefited from so many, you know, benefactors and yeah. and uh, um, and, and great, uh, great champions, you know, people like David Nixon and Frankie Vaughan and names that, you know, won't necessarily be on the tip yeah. of people's tongues these days, but is worth reminding those people that eulogized dad when he died about how great he was at putting his hand out to young writers and performers and 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 sort of encouraging them and to say that 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 was learned behavior often he had a very sweet um gentle sensibility himself but until he was shown that kind of kindness and he never would have used the term paying it forward but that's that's what he did and you mentioned michael palin he said exactly that in in the first day on the frost report you know dad and and marty feldman were the first two people to come over and say hello and he said i felt felt like a kid you know on the first day of school it was i was so nervous and they settled me down and he you know never forgot and there was a a lifelong friendship after that yeah and yeah and that's a valuable lesson to whatever business you're in but especially in (laughs) show business (laughs) uh, you know to not be a dick and be a nice person and you know and and, and that is kindness does pay it does pay off and you know and and also he's absolutely very modest man for his incredible talents as you say just that ability to to keep coming up with the goods is uh, for so many different people and so many different voices is would be astonishing on its own even if he hadn't done all the performing as well and he, you know yeah. he was he was a star in his own right as well and um yeah and and again a lot which is another thing i think michael palin would be true of michael palin and he had a lot of time for 
for people who were fans and, you know, he, and he just entertained people on trains and wherever yep, he was. Yep. And so you got lovely messages from just regular people, which I think is the nicest thing about it. But well, look, we could talk about it all day, but I would love people to go and uh, buy the book. I listened to it on audiobook, but it's obviously available where you do get great, a few little... Well, the thing you had on audiobook is, of course, you've got you've got original um, the original interviews with yeah. Palin and uh, Idol in there. Yeah. And you don't have me doing my terrible impressions of them. Um, because... Yeah, so that's <laughs> a nice yeah. bonus, yeah. But uh, the book is the book is great uh, and uh, comes with some illustrations and you know so uh, any fan of your dad would love it but I think it, any comedy fan would love it but it's also as I say I think there's there's father son relationships there's you know all that stuff about the the private the private life of of someone uh, not always matching with the the public life but but thankfully in rather an endearing and nice way in, in, in this case. And also your dad's a massive liar uh, and was never, <laughs> was never number one. Uh, and, That's and the most, yeah, <laughs> most important thing to lead with is, is that um, he's a complete fraud. So, you, you know, let's stick that on the book jacket. Okay, good. Uh, well, look, I, I miss your dad a lot and, and it's really lovely to chat, chat to you about him and, um, and yourself. Uh, so it was uh, a pleasure. So go and buy uh, Barry Cryer, same time tomorrow, uh, which is uh, one of his sort of catchphrases in life, written by his son, Bob Cryer. Uh, check out Giddy Stratospheres as well. Uh, <laughs> yes, while see, you're at it. See us folks that I peak about. Not at the same time, yeah. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you, Bob. Uh, see you next week. Thank you very much. Take care. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. Gofasterstripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. 
I love you all. I'm out.